You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmeswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you as always, Prashant. We've got a lot on the agenda on today's podcast. Uh, first, we're recording this on September 10th, Tuesday, and it's been a few hours since President Trump announced that his national security advisor, John Bolton, his third national security advisor, will be stepping down. Um, and that's that's quite a big deal. So I do want to talk to you a bit about what happens now, the implications of Bolton resigning, what that tells us about the nature of foreign policy when this within this administration more broadly. And then I do want to talk a bit about recent developments involving North Korea. Uh, we've gone a few episodes on the podcast without doing a dedicated conversation about North Korea, which is a bit of a surprise given how often we come back to the Korean Peninsula, uh, especially over the last two years or so. Uh, but there's been a lot of news recently. So um, the North Korean vice foreign minister, uh, Chae Sun-hee, released a statement on late on September 9th, North Korea's Foundation Day, saying that there was once again the possibility of talks resuming, or at least that the North Koreans were open to talking to the Americans again at a working level uh, towards the end of September, probably on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. Uh, so we can talk a bit about that. And then uh, I do want to briefly talk about the recent report of the UN panel of experts on North Korea, because there's a lot in there on the advancement of North Korean military capabilities, specifically in the ballistic missile and nuclear fuel cycle realm that I think merits attention, especially given the return to testing that we've seen. Um, but we'll get to all of that, Prashant, but I do want to begin by just asking you, I mean, what have you been thinking for the last few hours with this news of Bolton being fired effectively by the president? Yeah, I mean, it, it, as you noted, I mean, it's big news, not only for the event itself, but also the Trump administration's foreign policy more generally, right? I mean, since Bolton has gone into the administration, there has always been this sort of notion that given his previous hawkish views on issues like Iran or North Korea, um, that he would be one of the the sort of key uh, points to look to to see where the administration is moving on its uh, its foreign policy. So I guess the the, the takeaway that we've seen in, in, in the headlines that have come out so far. Um, and again, it's just a few hours, but that, you know, we, maybe this is the end of sort of a more sort of hawkish line that Bolton has gotten in the administration that folks have been kind of worrying about, whether this could lead to more military active activism or uh, more of an activist foreign policy under the Trump administration with him inside. But on the other hand, I mean, as we've been talking about this stuff in terms of personal changes in the Trump administration and uncertainty on foreign policy, um, you know, for a number of years now, right? So if you look at the defense secretary, um, you know, we we went with uh, the Shangri-La dialogue uh, last year when when you and I were there. We were dealing with a different different defense secretary. We we had another defense secretary. So first we had Mattis, then we had Shanahan. Now we have Mark Asper. So on these various positions, the national security advisor is still only one of several positions where we've seen uh, several of these changes take place. And I think one of the key things to watch is. You know, we're getting now to close to an election period where Trump is, you know, running for a re-election in, in a very interesting election in the United States. You know, is he kind of repositioning and making sure that he has folks that agree with him to make sure that he can get the policies that he wants? Because that's really the trend line that we've been seeing. And Bolton has clashed with Trump on several issues. So we know that, right? So it'd be interesting to see on North Korea, the question we're talking about, how that affects it more particularly. So what's your sense on that? Yeah, I mean, on the North Korean front, I think, uh, you know, when Bolton became national security advisor, and by the way, when Bolton was appointed, um, as far as I can recall, I mean, this was, uh, you know, 2018, Pompeo had just become secretary of state. 
um, McMaster was leaving the administration. Uh, Bolton's appointment was an attempt by Trump to change the news cycle. Um, I believe at the time there was some sort of unfavorable scandal relating to the Mueller report or something like that. So the announcement mm-hmm. of Bolton's, um, you know, a Bolton becoming national security advisor sort of came in that environment. And I think um, early on, Trump knew that Bolton and, you know, he and Bolton had some divergent perspectives. I will say, though, you know, Bolton leaving the administration doesn't necessarily take us towards a more restrained foreign policy. There's been sort of some commentary out there that Trump is somehow dovish and that Bolton was sort of steering his foreign policy into a more more dangerous realm. I mean, that's clearly false because the most dangerous part of the Trump presidency so far arguably came in 2017 when we almost went to war with North Korea, a nuclear armed country, and Bolton was nowhere to be seen at that point. Trump's instincts, I think, are, if not, you know, definitely not dovish, but I, I think he's he's generally quite militarist, right? I mean, within his first hundred days in office, he'd already struck Syria with cruise missiles. Uh, I think Trump sees the use of force as a good in itself. I think we can talk about that in the Afghanistan context, certainly. Uh, you know, he was boasting about how many terrorists we've been killing there. Uh, and uh, so that's, I think... Um, Part of the conversation that's getting a little bit muddled with Bolton now leaving the administration uh, on the North Korea front, I think I think that's probably the most significant Asia Pacific issue where Bolton's departure is likely to have some possibly salutary impacts on working level talks. Uh, so look, I mean, Bolton was widely perceived, at least in South Korea, as being a spoiler for both inter-Korean and U.S. diplomacy. He was kind of seen as the hardliner, keeping Trump from taking bolder action um, in opening up to the North Koreans. Um, Mm -hmm. continued narratives. I mean, we still don't have a perfect picture of what exactly transpired at the end of February in Hanoi when the summit fell apart between Kim Jong-un and Trump without any agreed um, text. But uh, Bolton's involvement there was sort of seen as a bad sign. And of course, when we had the June 30th meeting at the DMZ, Bolton was in Mongolia and Trump sort of took more of his ideological fellow travelers, uh, you know, including Fox News' Tucker Carlson with him to the summit. Uh, So... I think there have been signs that Trump is, you know, was sort of sidelining Bolton, especially on the Venezuela and Iran stuff earlier this year. Um, Mm -hmm. Bolton was, I think, pretty clearly, you know, out ahead of his skis, so to speak. Um, And for Steve Mm -hmm. Began, the U.S. special representative on North Korea, uh, you know, Began's rhetoric on North Korea changed between the speech that he gave in January at Stanford, which I think a lot of analysts sort of saw as a possible indicator that the administration's policy was softening, that a partial deal might be possible, that we wouldn't have to wait for North Korea's total denuclearization before any sanctions relief could happen. Then, of course, afterwards, after the summit, uh, when Began went back out in March and talked to sort of public audiences, uh, you know, I saw Began in in D.C. at the time, and uh, the rhetoric that he was using really started to sound a lot more like Bolton. It was sort of as if John Bolton had managed to correct the narrative that Began was using publicly. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, maybe this is a good point to transition a bit to talk about the latest signals from the North Koreans. What do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I, I think you you sort of wrote a piece on this um, about this idea that it may be open to a resumption of of talks in late September. Obviously, this is something which you know, as we've talked about on this podcast repeatedly, there have been these, you know, summit meetings, and then also that sort of DMZ encounter briefly between uh, Trump and Kim. But this effort to restart working level talks, we haven't seen a lot of progress uh, on that uh, thus far. But obviously, now slowly indications from uh, the North Korean uh, Vice Foreign Minister Cho Sun Hee that th- this might actually happen. And I guess the, you know, the the instinctive thing, you know, looking at the the headlines would be to say, well. 
you know, with, you know, Bolton's departure and now with the, the North Korean announcement and perhaps with, you know, Trump looking to signal that, you know, is more conciliatory and maybe, you know, heading into the elections, he wants to stabilize things with North Korea. Maybe there's actually a chance that these talks will will actually be restarted, even though we, we have some doubts given North Korea's pattern of on and off behavior, whether it'll actually translate to reality. But, you know, what's your sense of, you know, what the significance of that move is? But then also, you know, we, as you've talked about, we've seen kind of an on and off process thus far. You know, how, how do we expect things to play out on that front in the coming months if this actually comes to fruition? Yeah, so it's hard to say. I mean, working level talks since the beginning of Kim Jong-un's sort of turn towards diplomacy in early 2018 have really been about organizing summits, right? We had uh, U.S.-North Korea working level talks in May 2018, um, right before the summit was canceled. And then again, after mm-hmm. the summit was back on, uh, this is, of course, the June 12th Singapore summit, the first meeting between Trump and Kim. Um, after that, Mike Pompeo uh, went to Pyongyang a couple times to meet with Kim Jong-chol, who was the lead North Korean negotiator at the time, those meetings were very unproductive. And in fact, I think permanently soured the North Koreans on interacting with Pompeo in any way. And then, of course, Began was appointed in late August as the special representative. And months passed. Began waited for any sort of interaction. You had a trip to the United States by Kim Jong-chol in uh, late 2018. I believe it was November and then in early 2019, uh, in the lead up to the Hanoi summit, you again had working level talks and Began was mm-hmm. involved with his North Korean counterpart, who was then uh, Kim Hyuk-chol. Those talks didn't go anywhere outside of, you know, again, the or- organizing the logistics and the agenda for, this, um, for the Hanoi summit. And after that, of course, we, uh, after the failure of the Hanoi summit, we had months of radio silence from the North Koreans. In May, Kim Jong-un carried out the first missile test that he had since November 2017, Uh, So things were changing pretty quickly. And then since June 30th, we've been waiting for a resumption of working level talks. So if these talks happen in late September, um, and if, in fact, Chae Sun-hee, who's a very experienced North Korean diplomat working on the American affairs portfolio, is the one to talk to Began, we might have our first evidence since the beginning of 2018 that the United States and North Korea have a working level diplomatic process talking about the outcomes of the Singapore summit, right? Those, um, the four statements that they agreed to there, sort of how to make good on that. And of mm-hmm. course, the North Koreans have made other commitments in public, including the September 19th, 2018 inter-Korean Pyongyang declaration. Uh, the one-year anniversary of that is just nine days from the recording of this podcast. And of course, many of the commitments still went unfulfilled. So there are a lot of questions. Uh, I wouldn't say that Bolton leaving necessarily means that the United States is going to negotiate with a particularly different position. For instance, you know, John Bolton wasn't the reason that the administration said no to the offer mm-hmm. that the North Koreans proposed in Hanoi, which was that, you know, you give us relief from the majority of the clauses across uh, five UN Security Council resolutions sanctioning us passed between 2016 and 2017, and we'll give you, uh, you know, the plutonium and uranium uh, production facilities at Yongbyon, right? That agreement, mm-hmm. I think, if if we do go back to the negotiating table, and that's, again, what the North Koreans want to talk about, I don't think that's going to lead to a deal, right? I think the two sides need to be ready to do something smaller, you know, um, do what um, a friend of mine, uh, James Acton, has called less for less, right? Begin with small mm-hmm. packages of sanctions relief for small North Korean gestures, build confidence before you can actually get to larger concessions. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens from here. Um, I think, I think you know, this is all a positive sign as far as the indicators go. But, you know, as, as the North Koreans said, as Kim Jong-un himself said in April in his sort of first public remarks after the Hanoi failure, 
was that the United States basically needs to change its policy. The North Koreans have pretty much been waiting for the United States to, you know, reward reward them for undertaking some unilateral gestures last year, which the North Koreans categorize as the moratorium that they announced last April, April 2018, on the testing of intercontinental range ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons, in ad, you know, and additionally the uh, demol- uh, the demolition of their uh, nuclear test site at Pungiri. So they think, you know, look, we undertook these activities in good faith, and now we expect some degree of sanctions relief from the United States if we're to move forward onto other issues. And as far as I can tell, Washington seems no closer to uh, doing sanctions relief. Mm, right. Um, and I guess the good time maybe to to transition a little bit to talk about. So we've talked a lot about um, you know sort of the the U.S. dynamics and then uh, North Korea and potential change in terms of talks there. Uh, the other big development, as you mentioned, was the release of this uh, UN report, panel of experts report, um, which did you know very interesting from a variety of perspectives. Talked about you know the fact that even as we and I guess it goes back to this topic that we come to on North Korea often in this podcast, right? We see developments like, you know, you know, Trump Kim summits and uh, and you know individual tests that are going on. But the big question is always, you know, how should we think about continuity amid some of these changes, short-term changes that we see? And it seems to me, you know, one of the interesting things that come out came out of the UN report, as you noted, is, you know, even though we have these periodic developments where we see shifts and you know potential return to talks or uh, some tensions. Uh, the North Koreans are still continuing to develop their capabilities. Um, and that's, you know, not only their nuclear capabilities, but missile capabilities. They have significant cyber capabilities. Uh, so it seemed like, at least from my perspective, that this report, uh, at least the the headlines that have come out of it, has kind of reinforced this perception that, hey, listen, um, even though we have these ongoing conversations about, you know, whether they're negotiations or talks or not, uh, North Korea isn't waiting for that to happen, right? They're continuing on with their capability developments, and and that kind of matters too. Yeah. So, look, I mean, the North Koreans have not pledged to unilaterally disarm, right? That's one of the biggest Mm -hmm. misconceptions about this diplomatic process that we're in. Uh, Kim Jong-un has agreed to Mm -hmm. denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, which his father agreed to and his grandfather agreed to. And that phrase means something very different. It means sort of, you know, mutual reductions. And the in in you know one interpretation that the North Koreans have adhered to, uh, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is only something that can be accomplished when the whole world is disarmed of nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah. So clearly they are you know retaining their nuclear capability. They're pushing ahead. With this year alone, we've seen nine separate missile tests, um, and we saw a tenth right after um, Chase Sun Hee's comment on uh, the return to talks. So. The North Koreans are clearly uh, continuing kind of on a dual track approach, right? And part of the reason for that is that Trump has basically said that short range missile tests are totally fine. Of course, they're not. They they do constitute a violation of North Korea's UN Security Council resolution obligations. North Korea is not like any other country in its ability to, you know, use missiles for exercises and tests because it is specifically banned from doing so by the Security Council. So what does the panel of report, uh, the panel of experts report tell us about their capabilities? Well, basically that, you know, there's no good news here. The North Koreans are continuing to produce solid propellant rockets in in droves, right? I mean, that's every single missile that Kim Jong-un has tested this year since May is a solid booster. Mm-hmm. And the reasons those matter 
is because um, solid fuel rockets have the fuel, the propellant uh, sort of built into the missile casing itself, which means that they're a lot more usable in a crisis. They don't have to be fueled prior to use. They can be um, highly responsive. They can uh, be moved around more easily. So this is a, a dangerous development. And of course, in qualitative terms, many of the new missiles that they've been testing also pose challenges to things like allied missile defenses. Um, the South Koreans have possibly had some trouble detecting some of the launches as well. Uh, that's been an open question too, how well the South Koreans can actually see these launches. So these capabilities are developing and the panel of experts report um, citing a, a UN member state assessment. Uh, often UN member states will provide intelligence to the panel for inclusion in the report. So one member state, which is unnamed in the report, suggests that the North Koreans are ultimately building their way up to a solid fuel intercontinental range ballistic missile. They tested three intercontinental range ballistic missiles in 2017, but all of those were liquid propellant rockets, which require extensive fueling and maintenance uh, before they can be used. So ideally, the North Koreans in the future, um, for their deterrent to be robust and usable and survivable they would want to have solid fuel rockets just like the russians and the chinese do uh, mm -hmm. so that's something that i think the panel emphasizes the other issues that i think i'd point out from the panel is that uh, there have been ongoing deployments of other nuclear capable missiles such as the Pukuksong one the missile the u.s intelligence community um uh, sorry the Pukuksong two the missile the u.s intelligence community calls the KN-15, that's the land-based version of their solid-fuel submarine-launched ballistic missile. That has apparently now been deployed at um, bases in the country's north where the North Koreans in the old days used to deploy the Nodong, which is a much older liquid-fueled system. So they are progressing. Uh, you know, Trump, when he returned from Singapore uh, after meeting Kim Jong-un, he declared that there was no more threat from North Korea. And really, I think the panel emphasizes that, you know, that is not really the case, that the North Koreans are very much pushing ahead. They're not only um, deploying and building out their arsenal, which is something that Kim Jong-un directed during his New Year's Day address in 2018, right before he turned to diplomacy, he called for the mass production of warheads and ballistic missiles. So not only are they doing that, but they are also making important qualitative advancements that are really going to make negotiating with North Korea much more difficult uh, for the administration that's possibly going to succeed Trump in uh, in 2021. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the point that you made earlier is, is really significant too, right? The fact that, um, you know, you've seen Trump try to separate out you know, these are short range tests and it's, you know, removed from kind of the broader challenge that North Korea poses. But, it, you know, it seems, I mean, going back to a familiar theme, right, that the, the point is that all of these capabilities are linked, right? So if they make incremental advances now, they can lead to kind of broader gains. And North Korea is investing in, you know, and continuing to invest in a range of capabilities um, for that that constitute the threat. I'm just curious, though, I mean, the report, I mean, it was was kind of fascinating to, to to sort of read. I mean, it had, you know, pictures, anecdotes, various evidence of North Korean capabilities across the board, right? So there are smuggling activities, you know, things involving luxury cars, uh, cyber, the things in the cyber domain, in addition to some of these missile capabilities. As someone who follows this stuff uh, quite closely, did, did anything kind of uh, strike you as, as interesting or, or fascinating when you read the report in terms of um, what it said? Um, so a lot of the detail is is quite interesting. So, you know, a lot of the um, f following the North Korea issue closely, um, a lot of these issues are are well known. They've been reported previously. What the panel does in its reports is it concatenates the 
mm-hmm. you know, the previous years or the previous months, um, evidence documenting North Korean violations of UN Security Council resolutions. Uh, the United States has also publicized evidence of North Korean sort of illicit ship-to-ship transfer activity. We've heard about their use of cybercrime quite extensively. Um, last year, the um, the U.S. Department of Justice um you know, issued the complaint that had released on Park Jin Hyuk, a North Korean hacker who was um, uh, who was charged in connection with the 2014 uh, Sony Pictures Entertainment hack, and that document contained a lot of incredible sort of evidence about North Korean cyber activities, including a full range of actually North Korean IP addresses that are used by the Reconnaissance General Bureau, which is North Korea's overseas uh, intelligence agency. So, if anybody's interested in North Korean cyber activities, I'd really recommend checking that out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one thing I'll, I'll say on Trump and his comments on, you know, North Korean short-range missile testing and sort of brushing off all of these North Korean tests this year, effectively giving Kim Jong-un a green card to go ahead and continue testing, is that I think for Trump right now, the book is shut on North Korea. I think, you know, he's happy. He's basically, you know, adopting a form of strategic patience, so to speak. I mean, uh, just last week, he told reporters who were asking him about North Korea that, you know, he was he was saying that Obama had told him when he came into office that North Korea, that's going to be the hardest problem. And then what he said after that was that, and look, it hasn't turned out to be the hardest problem for me. So clearly, as far as Trump <laughs> is concerned, um, as long as things don't go back to where they were in 2017, he's happy. Of course, mm-hmm. that I think is a poor assumption that things won't go back to where they were in 2017, because the North Koreans, at least, at least Kim Jong-un earlier this year, put in place a deadline saying that if the U.S. doesn't change its position in negotiations by the end of the year, we're going to have to, you know, re- revise our our thinking on the measures that we've taken. So that means we might see longer range, larger missiles, including possibly intercontinental range ballistic missiles, be tested. We might see a new North Korean satellite launch. We haven't had one of those since February 2016. That might happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Nuclear testing, I think, is a little bit less likely, but uh, again, that's you know you can't rule it out. The North Koreans have been saying they might reverse all the commitments that they made in 2018. So that I think is the big danger now is that if if these talks, if you know, if Chess and He and Began do meet later this year um, or later this month, and they make no progress, we're effectively looking at the last opportunity before we go into 2020, and the North Koreans decide to change tack. And I think that's really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And and so where do you think that uh, sort of leads us before we we kind of close? I mean, what should we be keeping track of? So there's that North Korean deadline, the sort of end of year thing. But then there was also the the U.S. Uh, presidential elections uh, later next year. Um, and, you know, now with with Bolton out and we have this new sort of set of negotiations, you know, what are some things that we should be looking for on the on the positive side um, if if talks are to resume? I mean, I think, you know, we should look for indicators that Washington, that there is somewhat of a policy review process in Washington on the issue of sanctions relief. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really, I think, going to be the breakthrough. Some people have been talking about security guarantees because, um, you know, the North Koreans, uh, the North Korean foreign minister, Ryong Ho, at the press conference that happened after the Hanoi summit collapse, he said that, look, we've decided that security guarantees are, are actually the most important thing for us in moving forward, not sanctions relief, even though they just come to the diplomatic negotiating table earlier that day and asked for sanctions relief. So really, I think that's the core issue. And that's, you know, I mean, it's it's not impossible for the United States to change its policy on that. Unilateral U.S. sanctions, Treasury sanctions, those are a lot more difficult to deal with. But U.N. sanctions, those can be 
modified. I think China and Russia certainly would be on board. And if the United States decided to change policy, the French and the British would come along. And there could be some sort of minor revision that would give North Korea sort of a time-bound relief from some sanctions, right? Let's say the sanctions that have been Mm -hmm. put into place in 2017 on their textile sector. You say, you know, okay, look, if you um, allow us to verifiably disable the five megawatt reactor at Yongbyon, then we will give you 180 days or, you know, a whole year of relief from these textile sanctions. And then provided you're in good faith compliance at the end of that, we can extend that. We can discuss further relief or further measures from your end. So there, you know, there is a way here to work towards a deal, but obviously not, you know, getting there is a political determination in the United States. We have to be willing to put sanctions relief on the table. And I think, you know, we don't see signs of that. But again, with Bolton leaving, we might be at an inflection point where um, a, a new policy approach to North Korea can take hold. But again, I don't see evidence of that right now. So I'm not really holding my breath. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, Prashant, I think we're out of time today. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we'll uh, end it there. How's that sound? Sounds good. Great. Uh, So before we end the episode, just a note from our sponsor. Uh, This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the Asian region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. To learn more, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So if you uh, like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can catch up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please go ahead and do that. You can do that on either iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. We really appreciate it. It really helps get the word out about the show. And finally, if you have any requests about what you'd like to... uh, about what you'd like Prashant and I to take on on the podcast in the future, or if you have recommendations for a guest, please do get in touch with us uh, either via email or through Twitter. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.